Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Thank you for being here with us. We are still in the book of Acts. We've been walking through the book of Acts for, I think this is our eighth week now, but we're actually going to do something different this week. I know we've been going at a pretty breakneck pace, and we're not necessarily slowing down today, but we're going to put it in reverse for one week. Um, we've been looking for the past couple of weeks at this story surrounding Stephen when he was arrested and put on trial, and he preached this sermon uh, to the Jewish religious leaders, and then they end up stoning him to death, and a persecution broke out that drove the church out of Jerusalem for the very first time ever, but seeing how God used that to spread the gospel and spread this message about Jesus outside of Jerusalem and start building the church outside of Jerusalem for the first time ever, fulfilling what Jesus had said from the very beginning, that his disciples were going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they had been, and Judea and Samaria, which is where they go when the persecution starts, and then to the ends of the earth, which is where we're headed in a few weeks. But all that said, in this section here, and we're in Acts 7 today, in 7 and 8 when we've been looking at this, we've taken this sermon that Stephen preaches, and I told you that it was kind of like a Cliff's Note version of the Old Testament, the summer of the Old Testament, and we've treated it so far as part of the event. Like Stephen gets arrested, Stephen's put on trial, Stephen preaches, Stephen gets stoned to death, the persecution starts. That's the event that's happened, and we've talked about that and studied that for a couple of weeks. But I felt like what we haven't really done yet is to stop and look at the content of the sermon. We looked at the event, but we didn't look at the content. And so this week I wanted to back up and grab his sermon again and actually look at what he says about the Old Testament, the way he summarizes it, and what this sermon, this summary of the Old Testament teaches us about God. And so we're going to read the sermon again and just focus on it this week. And as always, but especially this week, I want you to be asking, what's this teach us about God? Because if we're going to take the whole Old Testament, you know, the three-fourths of the Bible, content-wise, and distill it down into one chapter, and thing after thing here that Stephen pulls out for us is truths about God. This is a massive summary and a massive picture of who God is. And so I'm going to pray for us that God would be teaching us during this time by his Holy Spirit, that he would help us to see what he has said about himself and revealed about himself in his word and in this summary of his word that we find in his word, which is a really nice thing for him to do for us, um, but that he would pull things out this morning, that he wants us to see and know about who he is so that we'll trust him and love him more. So I'm going to pray. We're going to read this sermon out of Acts chapter 7, uh, and then I'm going to be ask, ask you to be listening for what does this teach us about God and then based on who God is, what's he saying to us this morning? So let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time right now. Thank you for the grace that you have given us in the fact that you have made yourself known, that you haven't stayed far away and hidden and unrevealed in a way that we could never ever get to you or know you or understand who you are, but that you have come down and acted in your world and acted in history and interacted with your people, and then you have spoken to explain to us what you have done and what it means about you and who you are, and then you have given us men and women throughout the Bible who have written down and spoken and prophesied all the things that you have said so that we could have it now, that we could read together as your people right now who you are, what you have done, the truths about your nature and character and the way that you work in your world. And so we ask right now, Father, that as we read this sermon that's a summary of so much of what you've done in history, that you will help us to hear the things that you truly want to say to us, that we would know the things about you that you are revealing, that your spirit will teach right now as only he can, that he would open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts spiritually to hear from you, to see you, to love you, to trust you, and that you would do a spiritual work in this time in our hearts, building your church, making us into your people for your purposes in the world. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 7. We're picking up here in verse 2 when Stephen starts talking. They've put him on trial. They're accusing him of being opposed to their religious traditions and their law and the temple, that he's speaking against them in the name of Jesus. And this is Stephen's response on trial. This is his sermon. What's this teach us about God? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. 
the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I would judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham... The people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt." This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away 
and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. All right, that's the sermon that Stephen preaches while he's on trial. What stands out to you this morning? What's that teach us about God? His nature, his character, who he is, how he works. All right. God wants us to trust him. Did you add something else there? Okay. God wants us to trust him in all things. What else? God has a plan that we don't fully understand. I'd like to come back to this in a few minutes, but I'm just going to add right now as well. God has a plan that stretches, and this is part of the reason why we don't fully understand it, stretches way beyond our life. Just, I mean, you think about this sermon that Stephen preaches right here covers 2,000 years of Old Testament history from Abraham to the time of Jesus. is about 2,000 years. And he tells it all as one continuous story of God's plan, God's promises, how God's working it out. And you've got all these major names, and we'll, we'll go through this here in a minute, but you know, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Solomon, Joshua was in there after Moses. Like all these huge names, and every one of them in this one chapter, here's their life, here's what happened, they died, they're gone. Here's the next one. Their life, what happened, they died, they're gone. All a piece of this plan, all a piece of this story, but the whole thing way, way bigger. And the only one who's there from start to finish is God. Right? stretching beyond Abraham's life, stretching beyond Joseph's life, stretching beyond Moses' life, that they're a part of it, but it's not about them. It's not their plan. It's not their story. It's God's plan and God's story. It's beyond anything any of them can fully understand, God working it out in ways that none of them will fully see in their life, and it stretches right on to today. Like, this is what he's doing with his people in his church still today. Go on. What else? What's this teach us about God? God keeps his promises. It is, both this chapter or the Old Testament itself is full of all these promises that God makes to people. Even sometimes promises about, hey, this is going to happen way after you're dead. And when they're dead and gone, then sure enough, this happens. You know, like when he tells Abraham, here's what's going to happen 400 years from now to your descendants. And he, by the way, he makes a promise to Abraham, here's what's going to happen in 400 years to your descendants when Abraham doesn't even have any kids. <laughs> And God works everything out that all this happens. And then sure enough, here's what happens to his descendants 400 years from now. God keeping his promises all throughout history, all throughout your life and beyond your life. 
What else? Anything else you want to add? God moves people around for his purposes. Yeah, it's, no, it's, it's something great to see here. And, and yeah, we'll, like all this is connecting. Let's turn the corner for just a minute before I jump in because you know what happens when I do. If these things are true about God, God wants us to trust him in all things. God has a plan that we don't fully understand. God has a plan that stretches way beyond our life. God keeps his promises. God moves people around for his purposes. If those things are true about God, what are some things that God's saying to you this morning? How's he speaking to your heart about your life, about our church, about following him and trusting him? What's some points of application that you hear? Okay, so yeah, so Joseph gets a really raw deal, and we can talk more about it in a little while, but sold into slavery by his brothers. He's lied about, thrown into prison for something that he didn't do, and in the middle of all that, God's still at work using those very things to bring about the promises that God made to Abraham. And, and so what we see is that you know, God is good and faithful to take care of us, Even in the worst or hardest circumstances, circumstances, and for us, we can, should, still trust God. I'm going to say God's goodness. No matter how dark or hard things seem. When Joseph's brothers betray him and sell him into slavery, that doesn't mean that God's not at work. It doesn't mean that God's not good. It doesn't mean that God's not directly involved in Joseph's life. God has not forgotten Joseph. God's not moved on. God's not betrayed Joseph. God, God's not punishing Joseph, right? Like, this is God at work in the middle of human sin, and it is sin, and it causes suffering, and it's hard, and it's bad, and it's evil, and none of that's outside of God's ability to redeem and work good and still fulfill his promises. The, the, the evil and the sin of human beings is not greater than the promises of God, that God's promises trumps all that, swallows it up, takes it in, and says, I'll use that, I'll use that, and I'll turn it for good. And so like, everything that happened, slavery and prison, betrayal, uh, the, the lies, just all of it, ultimately is God working in Joseph. Not, not just that he hasn't forgotten Joseph, he's working directly in Joseph's life at that time to bring about promises that he made before Joseph was born. And for us to be able to step back with eyes of faith in our own life and say, when suffering comes, when the hardest moments, Come. When pain comes, when, when other people's sin and the evil of the world affects me in ways that just feels like it's overwhelming and it's more than I can handle, to remember God's still in control. God's still good. God's still faithful. God's still keeping all of his promises, and he can handle this. I can't handle this. But he can handle this, and he is at work in this, and he is going to bring great and glorious good out of this somehow, like in ways that I can't imagine. Like I promise you, when Joseph's getting sold into slavery, when he's getting thrown into prison, when he's left there for years, he's not thinking, you know what God's going to do? He's going to make me in control of all Egypt. <laughs> he never sees that coming. 
But it's what God's doing. And so just for us in those moments, it, it doesn't make it less dark. It doesn't necessarily make the suffering less painful. It just means that there's hope in the midst of it because God is bigger than everything going on in our life. And God is in control of it. And God is bringing good out of it. What else? I heard God's timing. What did you say? Yeah, right. God's timing. <laughs> Let's just, just do this for now. This is kind of fun, but it's so true. And it's sometimes in our flesh it's really annoying. But God's timing is God's timing, not ours. But also we can trust God's timing. Michael used to always say things like God is the God of the perfectly timed delay. And that is true. That you know, Moses thinks, hey, it's time for you to do this when he's 40. And God's like, no, you got another 40 years before I do this. And God's timing's right. And Joseph's delay. And, and a lot of it, I think, as we read those stories in Genesis, you do see God doing with them what he does with all of us, that there's things that he needed to teach them during that time. There was work that he needed to do in them, shaping their character, preparing them. That Joseph is a is a different leader after slavery and time in prison than he was as the kind of arrogant brother annoying little brother early on in the story there's things that have changed about him from his suffering and the same thing for moses that this you know rash violent guy who's like here's how i'm going to do it i'm going to kill that guy and they're going to know that i'm the leader now 40 years later it describes the the numbers describes him as the most humble man on the face of the earth that God had softened things about Moses where he could be entrusted with a type of power that before he didn't use rightly. And so a big piece of God's timing was what God was doing in his people, the way he was working in their hearts. And that's what he's doing with us. Like there are things in your life that he's saying, yeah, I, I have you here. For, like You think this is the, the bad thing. This is the good thing I'm doing in you right now. Like Your circumstances aren't nearly as important as your heart. And there's things that I'm teaching you right now. There's things I'm doing in your heart. There's rough edges that I'm smoothing out and things that I'm chipping away. And, and one of the ways that I think about it sometimes, and I feel like God does this, is that all of us, you know, spiritually early on, we're really, really shallow. And God can fill us up, but all we can hold is this, right? Like when, when God fills you, like he gives you all you can handle, and it's one inch worth of stuff. And God says, I want you to have more than that. I want you to have more of me, more of my spirit, more of my peace, and more of my love, and more of my joy, and more of my patience, and more of my compassion, more of my mercy, more of my grace. But here's what I've got to do. I've got to increase your capacity. And that means I've got to carve you out. And the way that I carve you out is with suffering, with pain, with law. I'm going to dig a hole in you, and it's going to feel like a hole. But now, when I deepen you, now you, you have more capacity to hold more of what I give you. And so don't, don't miss in your life the times when God says, yeah, this, I know this is hard. I know this hurts. I know it feels like I'm digging a hole inside your soul because I am, because I'm carving out a place to pour more of myself, more of my love, more of my grace. You can't hold enough of me yet, and I want to give you more than what you can hold right now. And I think we do see him doing that in his timing over time, preparing us for what he wants to give us in the future. What else stands out to you here? God uses unlikely people in unexpected ways. Yeah, this really stood out to me. And, and just, I'm not going to try to hit every example here, but I want to walk through, and I want you to see, with Stephen summarizing the entire Old Testament, and I know like every week we're coming in and I'm encouraging you like in your personal devotion time when you're studying the Bible on your own, in small groups and peop with people that God brings into your life when we're together here, I'm encouraging you that the right way to approach the Bible is to say this is about God. You know, God's at the center of all of this. And the only way that we're going to come with the right perspective is if we start with this question of what's this teach us about God. And what I want you to see, I hope again right here, 
is that's not just an idea that we're bringing from the outside and saying, hey, this is a good Bible study method. But here in the Bible, right, under the inspiration of the... Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit when he preaches. And then when Luke records this later, he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what they both tell us is that a summary of the entire Old Testament is about God. Stephen's focus, he tells the story of the Old Testament. He tells you what God's been doing, which tells us that the Bible is saying when you read the Old Testament, if you don't read it and see what God's doing, you're missing what the Old Testament's about. And I hope you can see that this morning. So Stephen starts this Old Testament summary, and look how he starts. The God of glory appeared to Abraham. This is not Abraham's story. This is God's story. Abraham doesn't initiate this. God initiates this. God tells Abraham, go somewhere. The reason that Abraham eventually ends up in Canaan and the land that becomes Israel, the reason that these people who consider themselves God's people live in the nation they do, they think of it as God's nation, is because God sent somebody there. God did this. God created these people. God created this nation. It's his story. And it's so far, so much to that extent, he says, go to the land, I'll show you. Like he doesn't even, Abraham doesn't even know where he's going when he takes off. This is God just saying, hey, I'll show you where I want you. This is my story. I'll know when you're there, and I'll tell you you're there. So Abraham goes. He lives for a while. God removed him. This is what we're talking about earlier. God, he, he lives in Haran for a while. His father dies, and then God moves him again. Like, Abraham's not going places because of Abraham. Abraham's going places because of God. I want to come back to verses 5 and 6 here in a minute. God, tell, God speaks to Abraham and tells him, hey, here's what's going to happen. Your people are going to be 400 years slaves. Like when they end up in Egypt, in slavery, this is part of God's plan. This is part of what God told him was going to happen. And then God says, I'll judge that nation. Right? God's going to judge Egypt. God's going to bring them out. God initiates this covenant of circumcision with Abraham. So here's going to be the mark that you're my people. This is not, this is not Abraham coming to God and saying, hey, so we, need, we want to be your people. Here's what we'll do as a sign. That, it's God saying, no, I'm choosing you as my people. Here's the sign I'm giving you. Here's the covenant, the promise I'm making with you. He gives him the son eventually. That son has a son. That son has 12. And you see 12. All right, here's where it starts. God's promised a nation. God's promised many descendants. God's doing what he said. But then Joseph, his brothers, sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him. That God was going with him. It was his intention that Joseph would be there. And God rescues him out of all of it. This is all God's work. The reason that Joseph ends up where Joseph ends up, the reason Joseph is delivered out of slavery and out of prison and ends up as the most powerful person in Egypt is because of God. The reason that Joseph has favor and wisdom before Pharaoh is because God gave it to him. It's not Joseph. God gave him this. Now there's a famine. Shockingly, it drives God's people where God said they would end up, right? Even the famine. This is God. This is him working through a broken creation. Sin has broken the world and things go wrong with weather and nature and food. And in all of that, God's in control and God's keeping his promises and God's doing what God said he would do. So the family comes, Joseph meets them all. He eventually dies. So, you know, Abraham's already dead. Jacob's dead. Joseph and his brothers die. But I mean, that's, that's generations there. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, four generations since God made that promise to Abraham. And they're all dead, but it's still happening as the time of the promise drew near. Like God's still working out this, this plan, still telling this story which God had granted to Abraham. The promise is God's. Right? This is not Abraham coming and saying, hey, God, here's what I think you should do. Will you bless this? This is God saying, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bless you. And just shockingly, the time of the, it's almost time for the promise. What happens? The people increased and multiplied. Just a coincidence, right? Just, just happens to work out that way. That people grow to the size of a nation. All of a sudden, when God's ready to plant a nation, here comes this king, the new Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph, doesn't remember what Joseph did to help Egypt through the time of the famine. And so he is really, really unkind to the Israelites, dealt with them shrewdly, forces them to lay their babies out. so Because he says, hey, these Israelites are growing so quickly. There's going to be more of them than there are of us. And they could rebel against us and take over the nation. So he's trying to kill their babies. Yet even that 
Even this is God creating a situation at work in circumstances through just evil, horrible, awful. Like it's almost unspeakable to think of what's really going on. Like if you really stop and don't just read it and go on, but you think about what Pharaoh is causing to happen with these Jewish babies. And yet God is creating the situation where he's going to deliver his people out. Moses is born. And I just, I'll go ahead and say this, even though we're going to come back. Moses is born. Remember, Pharaoh is in the process of trying to kill all the Jewish babies. That's, his, that's Pharaoh using his human power to control this situation and bring about what he wants. What does God do with that Pharaoh? <laughs> it's one of my favorite parts in the whole Bible. Pharaoh's daughter adopts him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. God says, okay, Pharaoh wants to kill my people's babies. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have Pharaoh raise the baby in his palace who will deliver my people from Pharaoh. Do you know who's in control of this whole thing? You know whose story this is? Like the power of Pharaoh is nothing against God. Like God is in control of rulers and nations and world events, even when it looks really, really, really dark. I mean, babies are dying, like being left to die outside. And in the middle of that, God is raising up, out, out of that death, God's raising up a deliverer, raising up a redeemer, raising up someone to rescue his people. Like he's, he's, I mean, it is the gospel. It is Jesus. He's stepping into the jaws of death and saying, I'm going to bring my rescuer out of this place of death. The, the one who intended to bring death. Pharaoh intends to bring death. I'm going to use him to raise up the one who gives life to my people. It's so good. Moses jumps the gun. Like, it's not because of Moses, right? Murders somebody. Runs off. He's a coward. The people reject him. Who are you? Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? So Moses runs off. He's out in the wilderness now. And even in the wilderness, fleeing, 40 years, not enough to get him away from God. The wilderness, not enough to get him away from God. The sin of murder, not enough to get him away from God because God had made a promise. And God shows up, and his promise is bigger than the time that has passed. His promise is bigger than the wilderness that Moses is in. His promise is bigger than the mistakes that Moses has made. And God says, hey, it's still me. I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And because I've showed up in the wilderness, it's now holy. I make stuff holy. I can show up to a hiding murderer in the wilderness and that spot becomes holy because I'm here. I've seen the affliction of my people. I've heard their groaning. You, you hear the compassion of God here. And now come, I will send you. Here we see it again. Moses doesn't go back to Egypt to rescue his people. God sends him. God moves him. God picks his people up and places them where he wants them exactly when he wants them to be there. And the best part of all, this is the guy <laughs> that his own people looked at him when he was trying to protect him. They said, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? And the answer is, God. <laughs> God made him both ruler and redeemer. That's who chooses somebody like Moses. This God who's telling his own story. Of course you don't pick Moses if it depends on Moses. You don't pick Abraham if it depends on Abraham, by the way. I skipped that a minute ago, and I wanted to go back to it, but I'll just say it right now. Abraham has no children, and he owns no land. And God's about to start a nation. What are the two things you need for a nation? People and land. Right? Nobody picks Abraham. Except God. Because that's who God always picks. God always picks the people that it doesn't make any sense to the world. God always picks the people who don't have what they need. God always picks the people who need everything from him or there's no chance this is going to work. And so he says, here, you've got no kids? Great. You own no land? Perfect. Here's my promise. You're going to have many, many descendants and you're going to own this whole country. 
Your descendants will live in this nation, and that'll be my, I'll speak my people into existence. Same way with Moses. They look at you, they don't see a rescuer. They see a murderer, they see a coward, they see somebody who fled for 40 years. That's not, and God says, you, I pick you to be the ruler and the judge and the redeemer of my people. The one that you, you should have died when you were three months old, by the way. Like if Pharaoh had his way, you would already be dead 80 years ago. You. So Moses leads them out into the wilderness for 40 years. Moses makes his promise, God's going to raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And of course, here's what we see, though. The people are still rejecting him. Like they're still not believing what God is doing. And that doesn't stop God from doing what he's doing. When they turn away from God, he gives them up to their sin and their idolatry. They worship idols even in the desert. They're not even in the promised land yet. And then the whole time they're in the promised land, they continue to do this over and over and over. And their sin and their unfaithfulness does not stop God's promise, does not stop God's plan. Because it's not about them. Like, it's not like, hey, God found the best people on earth and they got it right. And because they got it right, he finally was able to do something through somebody. They never get it right. For 2,000 years, they don't get it right. For 2,000 years, God always gets it right. That's how Stephen ends the whole thing. He's like, yeah, so, so your, your fathers, they had Moses and they had all the promises of God and they had all these prophets. They had the tabernacle in the in the wilderness they brought the tabernacle into the promised land with joshua they built the temple after david and solomon they had all that you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears you always resist the holy spirit as your fathers did so did you they had all that and for two thousand years they never listened to god they never believed god and you're still not doing it today now he's done the main thing he promised all along, and he sent the Messiah, the Christ, the Redeemer, the Rescuer, the Savior. He has sent Jesus of Nazareth, and he's died on the cross for your sins, and he's raised him from the dead, and you still resist him. That's the people God picked in the Old Testament. This is how God has worked in history. This is who he's used. And none of it, none of their sin, none of their rebellion, none of their unfaithfulness has stopped him. It's his story. Like you have to see him. Like do you know how much better it is for you to read the Bible and see who God is and let that change your life and dictate your life than to read the story about all these people, flawed, imperfect, broken, who never, ever get it right, and for you to try to somehow model them or let them be your, or be better than them? It's not, that's not what the Bible's about. You know, to go back to, for me, like old school when I was a child in church, I know that I've heard Moses when he's put out in the, in the basket. I, I've heard it told, you know, because his sister comes to watch over him, and his sister kind of orchestrates to end up having him get adopted into Pharaoh's daughter's family. And I've heard it told, like, the, the point of that story is that you should be good to your brothers and sisters. Right? Take care of your family. Be kind to your brothers and sisters. Like, and, hey, there's a piece of application there that you can pull out, but let me tell you something. That is not the main part of that story. That's not what it's about. It's about what we talked about just a minute ago, who God is, that God is so big and so strong and so powerful and so faithful that he will take the king of an entire nation who's trying to kill infants, and he will use that king to raise the very infant, to raise him up in his palace and train him in such a way that he has everything he needs to lead those very people that that king's trying to kill out from the power of that king. It's about God being able to do that. That's what the story's about. And if you see him, your whole life changes. If you believe he can do stuff like, what in your life? And I'm not saying there's not big stuff in your life, and I'm not saying there's not hard stuff in your life. What in your life is as big as having the Pharaoh of all Egypt trying to kill your three-month-old baby? If God can handle that, here's the point. If God can handle that, God can handle what's going on in your life. 
God can redeem it. God can work it for good. He can bring results out of apparent hopelessness, impossible situations, overwhelming situations, situations that never, ever, ever could you do anything about them. But these people are slaves under the power of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is killing their babies. They're, they have no power, no influence, no authority at all, and God builds a nation out of that. And his spirit lives in you now. And he says he wants to build his church out of that. Out of you and out of me. That's what he's doing. And so just a a few summaries here. God uses people who have nothing to offer. I'm getting that out of Abraham, right? You want a nation, you need two things, people and land. Abraham has none of that. No children, no land, and that's who God uses to build a nation. Like, he intentionally chooses, and it's not just, oh, yeah, he doesn't have kids yet. It's that he's 75 years old the first time God comes to him, and he and Sarah have never been able to have a baby, infertile their whole lives god picks somebody who's like it's impossible for you to have kids and you don't own any land you you have nothing to offer that i need to build my nation that's why i'll use you because when this nation comes into existence nobody's going to say well abraham and sarah you know i mean they had a lot of kids and abraham was really wealthy and it was just it was a good starting place there's a lot of there's a lot of things in place no Nothing, nothing, there was nothing about Abraham that made God choose him except for his nothingness, his neediness, the fact that he didn't have what he needed. That's who God chooses. God uses people who have nothing to offer and then God gives what we need and what we don't have For his purposes. He doesn't just say, hey, Abraham, I want to make a nation out of you. No. Figure it out. Go conquer some people and get some land. Have some babies. Now, he keep, like, even when Abraham tries to do it other ways, I'm going to, I'm going to appoint my, my servant. He'll be my heir. And God's like, no, no. I didn't ask you to give me an heir. I told you I would give you one. And then Abraham and Sarah hatched this plan. All right, hey, take Hagar. You can have a baby with Hagar, and that can be your son. God's like, I didn't ask you to give me a son. I told you I would give you a son. What you don't have, the things that you need for me to keep my promises, I'll give them to you. That's what God's saying. Even when they get the land, it says that God drove the people out before them. It's not that Joshua leads Israel in and they conquer the land. It's that God drives the people out and God gives the land to them. How do they end up with a whole bunch of people? Because God creates them. How do they end up with a whole bunch of land? Because God gives it. And when that's the God that you're dealing with, listen to me, nothing's off the table. (laughs) Nothing is off the table. You walk in one week and you just think, how in the world is this how God's building his church to the ends of the earth? Because God does things that look absolutely impossible. Because God does things that are so much bigger than anything that we could ever do or bring to the table. Because God chooses people who have nothing to offer and then he gives them what they need to do what he's called them to do. The next one that I I saw here, this is with Joseph. I know we already said it, but God is with us when everything seems to go wrong. Here we are just a few generations out from this promise to Abraham. And now there's 12, right? Jacob's got 12 sons. And so the number's spreading, but we've already got basically civil war within the family. Who in the world is going to build God's own nation out of these wretched brothers? We've got civil war within the family. One of them ends up in prison in Egypt. The others are in a famine and about to die in the promised land. 
Like, everything's going wrong here. Like, this is it. This is the end of God's promise. They're going to die in Canaan. The only one that's not in Canaan is going to die in prison. It's all gone wrong. Except it hasn't. <laughs> Except God's at work in the middle of all of it. God intends to bring his people to Egypt. He's using the famine to drive his people to Egypt. And he sent Joseph in front of them to prepare Egypt for his people because he's going to use Egypt, the way I always like to think of it, like an incubator. And he's just going to stick his people in this incubator. Like Twelve become two million. <laughs> it's nation time. But that's what he's doing. Yeah, yeah, it takes betrayal and treachery and slavery and prison and a famine. It takes that. Well, God's in control of all that. Those aren't the ingredients you and I would use to build a nation, but those are the ingredients God uses to build a nation. And that's why, listen, that's why nothing's off the table for his church. That's why you can't imagine what he's doing right now in the world, in situations where you don't see it at all, where it looks so dark, where you think, well, there's no way he's going to use me. There's no way he's going to use us. There's no way that's happening here. Maybe it is. Maybe it's just about time. Do you believe this is who he is? Do you believe this is what he does? And then I know we talked about, I spent a lot of time already on Moses and Pharaoh and that, that the very one who's trying to kill God's people, God actually uses him to raise up the leader who delivers God's people. And just this phrase from Romans 8 kept popping in my head this week. More than conquerors. That we're more than conquerors through him who loves us. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that phrase. I feel like I usually read that and I don't really think about what it means because I just think about conqueror. You know, conquerors, okay, so Pharaoh is against God's people. God's people are able to conquer Pharaoh because God helps them. You know, they, they defeat Pharaoh and they get out. And that's it. That's, but that's just conquerors. And that's not what the Bible says in Romans. More than conquerors. What, what does more than conquerors mean? Well, it means you have to do something more than just conquer, right? Which is exactly what happens here. It's not just that, that God allows his people to conquer Pharaoh and conquer Egypt and get out, but he actually uses Pharaoh and uses Egypt to build up his people. Like the very ones who are opposed to his people, their opposition is what God uses to strengthen his people, to make them. They don't just conquer them. They grow stronger in the midst of the opposition and conquer them and are better off on the other side because God let them go through that. Right? They, that millions of people now, instead of 75 who went down there initially. And then also, on the way out, we didn't read the story, but on the way out, God says, hey, after I've done all these plagues and the Egyptians are scared to death of you, ask them to give you all their gold and silver and riches, and I'll make them favorably disposed to do that. And so they walk out now with two million people who are rich and wealthy and have everything they need to start a nation, all because more than conquerors in Egypt. And what I was saying earlier about God using your suffering to deepen your capacity, to, to dig down inside of you and to clean stuff away so that there's room for you to receive more, that's more than conquerors. That you, he doesn't just get you through the suffering. He doesn't just get you through the pain. It's not, okay, just, yeah, yeah, we'll get through to the other side and it'll be over and you will have made it. It's not that. It's, I'm going to get you through and you're going to be better than you were before. You're going to know me more than you did before. You're going to have a greater capacity to receive my compassion and my mercy and my love and my grace. And I can fill you up with so much more that you have so much more to overflow to people. It's another way to think about it. It's like God's saying, there's things about me that you can only learn in the dark. And you need to know those things. You know, all the stars, you see the sun during the day, but there's all sorts of other stars that you only see at night. And God said, I need you to know all that about me. And so, yeah, you've got to go into the dark for a while. But when you come out on the other side, you'll know more of me. And it's not just that you got through the night. You're more than a conqueror because of the night. You know me more. When you come back out into the daylight, you still know all the truths you learned in the dark. But you had to learn them in the dark. And some of you today, that is God's word for you. Like, why? Why am I here? Why this long? Why does this last this way? Because he's got things he's teaching you and he's got things he's doing inside of you and he has things planned for you and you need more of him and he's giving himself to you. Just open your eyes up and see him. Trust him. Wait there with him. Believe what he's doing. 
God uses people. Uh-oh. Oh, P. That's people who are rejected by everyone else. We talked about this with Moses. Moses' own people, he comes and he kills an Egyptian. He's protecting his people, and his people are like, who made you ruler and judge? And then Stephen deliberately later is like, hey, they asked him that question. Here's the answer. God made him ruler and judge. The one that the people rejected is the one that God chose for the very thing they rejected him for. When it doesn't look like that this is any way the world would, the world would never say, do it this way. The world would never say, you've got what it takes. The world would never say, you measure up. The world would never say, oh, yeah, we pick you. you you're going to do this. That's who God uses. That's how God's building his church. That's how God advances his plan and brings about his promises. Outcasts and rejects and nobodies and nothings. The people who look least like they would be the ones. That's who God uses. And then Stephen ends here. God needs nothing from us. When he summarizes the whole thing down there, and he's like, yeah, look, they had the tabernacle and they had the temple, but what did God say even in the Old Testament about the tabernacle and the temple? He said, what are you going to build for me? Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Do you think I need your tent in the desert or your building in Jerusalem? But God has to condescend to limit himself to that. It's the humility of God to come down and dwell in that itty-bitty holy of holies room when everything's his. <laughs> He's the ever-present, everywhere, all-the-time God. They weren't doing him a favor. They weren't bringing him something he needed. He's like, yeah, this is who I am. It's all mine. Sure, I'll come down and be with you right there because that's what you need. Their whole relationship with God was based on God giving them what they needed when they had nothing to offer. It wasn't based on God needing anything from them. And listen, this is how we come to God. Yes, we have nothing to offer. Yes, we have less than nothing. We are in debt. We're in the hole. We are bankrupt. And God comes and says, I'll give you everything you need in Jesus. I'll remove your debt. I'll pay the price. And then I will transfer to your account everything that you're supposed to have, the righteousness and the goodness and the holiness and the faithfulness that you don't have. You, you've got none of, none of it to be my people, none of it to be my church. You're just like Abraham trying to start a nation. You don't have what you need. And so I choose you. And I'll give it to you. I'll give you all of it in Jesus. And then the call for us is exactly where we started today, to believe this about God, to turn to God, to see who he is and trust that this is who he is. Because what Israel does in the Old Testament is what we do in our flesh. They turn away from God. They, they say, give us other gods, idols. The first time it's a golden calf. And God says, okay, you turn away from me, I'll let you go. The God turned away and gave them over. He lets them do what they're doing. A few weeks ago, I talked about that quote from C.S. Lewis where he says, in the end, ultimately, there's going to be two types of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done. That, that we look to God, we, we see that God opens our eyes spiritually and he softens our heart to believe. And we see who God is. And we believe it and we trust him and we come to him and we say, you are good and you are faithful and you are right and you are true and I want to follow you. I want to belong to you. Here, here's my heart. Here's my life. Thy will be done. I trust you. There will be people that respond to God that way. And he said, and then there will be people to whom God says, thy will be done. Or who say, I reject you. I don't trust you. I turn away from you. And God says, okay, you can. That's what we see here, that they turn away from God, from the creator who's in control of all creation, and they turn right back to creation and say, we're going to treat this like our God. We're going to make these idols and, and trust these idols and celebrate these idols and worship these idols and turn away from God. And all of us don't think that it's a golden calf. All of us struggle with this in our hearts. The non-God things that we want more than God, the non-God things that we trust more than God, 
the non-God things that we live for more than God. You know, the biggest one of all, me, you. My life's about me. Self, flesh is what the Bible calls it. That I live a life of self-centeredness and selfishness and self-preoccupation and self-justification and self-assertion and self-control and self-esteem and self-righteousness and self-reliance and self-sufficiency. And I'm my own God. And God's saying, will you turn away from the idol of yourself and turn back to the one true and living God? And it is right here. This is part of the reason why I'm so adamant and insistent every week that you have to see that the Bible's about God. Because if you see that the Bible's about God, there's a chance you'll see that your life's about God. That the whole story's about God and your life is part of that story. So your life's about God. But if you keep coming to the Bible and you think that it's about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph and Moses, you'll probably come to your life and think that your life's about you. And you'll be like, what can I learn from their life that applies to my life? And you missed. It's not about their life and it's not about your life. It's about him. And, and while we're on this topic of, of idols, like if, if you're still thinking, I don't, I don't have idols. Let me, almost 10 years ago, um, I went on a mission trip to China to work with a couple of missionaries over there. So, and they're lifelong missionaries in China from Tennessee, um, and so, you know, like if we, you know, in our church standards, it's kind of like you've got the people that serve in the church, and then you've got the pastors, and then you've got the missionaries, right? Like they're, they're the holy of the holies. And so these people have given their life to serve God in China. And I was over there, and they were doing sort of an orientation, and they were talking about how different the, the culture is and how you can have a lot of culture shock. And the wife shared this story. And she said, when I got over here and we started learning the language, you know, I just... Like it was just, just everything was different. I was so far from home. And she said, but the one thing that was the same is that they had Coke, Coca-Cola, everywhere I went. And it just always felt like just a little piece of home. And she's like, and I got to the place, as long as I had a Coke in my hand, I would go anywhere, start any conversation, I would try to speak in Mandarin, and I just, if I had a Coke, I felt comfortable. And she's like, and one day, I went and I got my Coke and I was headed off and I just heard God say in my head, you trust that Coke more than you trust me. And I know it sounds silly and it sounds trite, but she was dead serious. So there had come this point in my heart that I took more comfort from knowing that Coke was in China than I did from knowing that God was in China. That Coke gave me a boldness and a comfort and reminded me of home more than the presence of God did. And she said, like, Coke had become an idol for me. She's like, so I had to give it up. And it's not that that's a bad thing, right? It's not that never drink a Coca-Cola again. That's not the point. The point was the place that it had taken in her heart had replaced God. And she says, so I just had to quit drinking Coke until I knew that I could rely on God and not on Coke. And uh, I just want to encourage you today to look into your heart, to examine your heart, and to say, do I trust God? Do I believe these stories that are true about God, who he is? how faithful he is, the way he keeps his promises, what he gives to his people and does for his people, and the way that he takes care of people who have nothing to offer him. Do I believe that's who he is? And because that's who he is, because that's who he is, and because he now lives in me, that's why I go and live as his people. That's why I really believe that he's building his church. That's why I do all the religious things and all the good things and all the righteous things that flow out of me. It's because of him. Or are there a bunch of little idols in your heart that, just like Moses did to that golden calf, we need to crush them this morning, grind them up to powder and throw them into the stream? God deserves to be the only God in your heart and in your life because he's the only God in all of history. This is who he is. The whole thing is about him. And in his grace, this God who the whole thing's about him, in his grace, he comes to you and he says, and I'll choose you. And I'll choose you. And I'll choose you. In Jesus, I'll give you everything that you need. In Jesus, I'll make you mine. I will call you my people. I will call you my church. And in Jesus, I'll do everything that I've ever promised. And I pray that we will believe him for that. I pray that we'll pray 
like we believe him. I pray that we will study the word and share the word like we believe him. I pray that we will go, that we'll let him move us and move us and move us and bounce us around, whatever that looks like, because we believe him, because we're his people and he can plant us wherever he wants us and he can pick us up and uproot us and send us somewhere else whenever he wants, however he wants. I pray that he'll build that type of church right here in us because I know he's building that type of church in his world. It is what he's doing. And so will you pray with me right now that he'll be doing that in us and that this is what we will see and live out as we trust God in this way? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that this whole thing really is about you because that's our only hope. If it's about us, we're not getting it done. But you are, you always have been, and you always will. And we trust you and we believe you and we thank you. And so right now, Father, we ask you to keep doing this in our hearts. Build your church as only you can. Use us to make Jesus known and to make disciples. Bring about the spiritual growth and the spiritual results and the spiritual fruit that only you can. We need you. We depend on you. We trust you. And right now we worship you and we thank you because of Jesus. And so it's in his name that we pray. Amen.